Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Welcome in on a Thursday morning. And I would advise you, soak up today's show. Because we're off tomorrow for the 4th on the 3rd. Woohoo! Sorry, I just I just crave sleeping in. <laughs> I love me some three-day weekends. It'd only be better if we could, you know, travel and go somewhere. Well, uh, these are the times. We'll, we'll play the hand we're dealt. All right, so we got multiple things to get to this morning. We're going to start off with bonus Joe Ingles. He had a Zoom interview. And uh, talk to some of the media. Now, we're going to have our weekly visit with him coming up later in the show today. But there's never enough, Joe. Here's Joe Ingles, a portion of his conversation with the local media on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. So my question is, uh, with, with Bojan now, what, what role do, do you and Mike play? And, you know, how important is that? Are you two guys going to be going forward? And is, is that something, a source of pressure for you, for lack of a better, for, for lack of a better term? Um, I mean, definitely not the pressure part. I, I'm not going to um, kind of go into a game now and feel like I've got to try and be Boyan or, or try and score like Boyan does or, or whatever it is. Um, obviously, it, it opens up a lot of minutes. Um, he, he, was, he played a lot of minutes. He um, averaged a lot of points for us. But he was obviously a, a high-level scorer, so... Um, which obviously means there's a, a few shots open um, and obviously some, some minutes. So I think it'll be shared around. I don't think any of us are going to – I don't think anyone's going into this thinking that I have to do what he was doing or Mike has to do what he was doing. I think um, it def- definitely gives us more opportunity. Um, and uh, I think probably Michael will take a lot of that, uh, which I think he's he's ready for and excited for. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be a collective kind of effort, but – um, in saying that, obviously, he, he's still a big piece to, to miss going into this kind of last whatever's going on from here on out. <laughs> hey, uh, next question will be from Eric Weldon. Eric? Hey, Joe. Nice to see you. You too. Uh, so when last we spoke, when this, when this bowl concept was just kind of a vague idea, um, you know, you expressed some reservations about it. You've obviously since said that... Uh, you know, you're willing to support your teammates. You'll do whatever. But now that it's kind of a reality, how are you feeling about uh, the, the bubble idea in general? What's your comfort level with it? Um, I mean, probably not still 100% kind of comfortable or, or anything. Um, I don't really think anyone would be 100%. I don't know. I mean, obviously, what, what we see in here, we, we've had a lot of meetings, a lot of talks, and, and they've filled us in. We had one yesterday with the NBA that was um, pretty informative, just giving us a bit more information on how things will work. Um, to say that I'm, like, completely comfortable, I don't think – I mean, I'm definitely not, but I'm going to obviously put myself in, in a position to, to be as safe as possible. I'm going to spend a lot of time in my room with my coffee machine and get to know it very well. and. Um, Obviously, like I said, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to play with my team, support my team, and, and obviously we're going to do what we can to, to, to get as far as we can. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's tough when you're relying on obviously not just yourself to be smart about things, but you're relying on so many other people. So um, not that I don't trust everyone, but it, it's just uh, a lot of it out of, is out of my control as well. So, um, like I said, I'll control what I can control and – be as kind of smart with, with the things that I can do. Um, and then hopefully that puts our team and, and, and everyone else there in a, in a reasonably safe position. Okay. Uh, next question will be Ben Anderson, KSL Sports. 
Hey, Joe, kind of along those lines, what point did you feel comfortable coming back? How close did you get to not coming back? Well, at the start, I think it was, um, well, I obviously did had, had said I wasn't comfortable at all. And, and obviously with, with not knowing anything of about it, like, I mean, we really didn't know anything. It was a, a pretty new thing. And um, obviously for me, and which I couldn't say back then as well, but with Renee being pregnant, um, and with my son Jacob, with uh, the autism and his um, his immune system being kind of compromised, um, it was just a scary time, I, I think, for everybody. And um, adding those things on top of that, there was there was no way at that point I would have. If they said we were coming back in two weeks' time, there would there would have been no no way I would have gone. And um, I think obviously, I've, I think Renee was saying yesterday we're at like hundred and something days of kind of since that happened and. Um, we know a lot more. We, we know what obviously I can do myself, like I said, to be, to be safe and, and put myself in a good position. And um, I think that one of the scarier parts is, is once this is all over, going back to my family and, and not having symptoms or something like that and, and taking it back. So um, going back will be, be something I'm very cautious with as well. But um, obviously, as, like I said, the, the, as time's gone on, I've, I've kind of um, – felt more comfortable. Um, like I said, the NBA has been good with, with keeping us um, kind of yeah, whatever the word is in tune with what's kind of going on and what the protocols are going to be. And we had a, like I said, we had one yesterday that was probably a bit more informative where obviously we get into a week or whatever until we, we leave. So um, yeah, like I said, I'm just going to do everything in my power to, to, to be as smart as I can. Okay. Uh, next question will be Jeff Ramier. Jeff. I mean, yeah. Good morning, Joe. Hey, uh, so much uncertainty about what's going on everywhere. Uh, when you guys get down to Orlando, is there any way of predicting what's going to happen? I'm talking about on the court with how teams will react and play. And do you like your team's chances going down there even without bogey? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for the, the second part, I do like our team's chance. I think, um, Obviously, I only know what our team has been doing. Um, I haven't spoken to, to too many other people except a, a couple of the other Australians. But, um, you, you, yeah, I mean, I, I know our guys have been working. Um, I know our guys will, uh, have put themselves in, in positions. Obviously, we haven't been allowed to practice as a team or anything like that. So it's um, still a little unknown how it all pieced together. But we'll obviously come back when we can as a group and we have got to figure out um, obviously the Boyan stuff and, and how we figure kind of um, pick up where, where the things that, that he does well. And um, in terms of other teams, you just don't know. That's um, I guess kind of one of the cool things about doing it is if teams haven't been taking care of themselves individually or as a team, then um, you can really get a kind of jump on, on a team. So um, yeah, I feel like we'll be ready. Um I obviously feel like that a lot of other teams will be ready too, but, but there's obviously going to be some um, some players or some teams that, that either didn't think it was happening or, or hadn't been working as hard. So um, at the end of the day, obviously we, we hope that everyone stays healthy and, and injury free and it's a, it's a good way to finish the season. And um, the Jazz get crowned the champions would be nice. All right, there's a portion of Joe Ingles' Zoom interview. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to 1280thezone.com. Our whole show is there. If you miss anything... 
Go to 1280thezone.com. You can listen to every segment of every show. You can listen to a whole hour at one time, if that's what you prefer. You can listen to an interview pulled out, just one segment. Uh, and also, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, on down the line, wherever you get them. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Andy Bailey covers the Utah Jazz for Forbes.com, also writes for uh, Bleacher Report. His take on the Jazz, the restart, where the Jazz start, and where they stack up in the West. That's next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK and Andy Bailey joining us now. Covers the Jazz for Forbes.com, the NBA for Bleacher Report. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. All right, before we get to what happens in Orlando, Andy, I'm curious what level of confidence you have that Orlando is going to happen. I know there's still some people out there with doubts and questions, but I'm seeing these positive tests. Uh, for players who have been spread out all over the map, different parts of the U.S. Some of them have tested positive while they've been living overseas. And I'm thinking, how can it be dangerous, more dangerous in a bubble, even a less than perfect bubble? How can it be more dangerous than it is in some of these communities around the world? Do you buy in that? I, yeah, I think the answer to your question is um, <laughs> there's no way to know and and I, I think you're on the right track with that question. Um, several weeks ago, the league, and I, it came through Wojnarowski, I think, but the league uh, told players, essentially, we have to be prepared for what happens when, when guys test positive, which they will inevitably do, and now we've seen that bear out. Um, and we have to be willing to sort of push through that. And one thing I thought with the last few days, and we keep seeing names of guys testing positive, Jokic, DeAndre Jordan, Spencer Dinwiddie, I, I'm sure I'm you know, missing a bunch. I think Buddy Heald was one. Um, and even as all those names get reported, you're not hearing anything from the league saying, um, okay, we're going we're gonna to change the plan, back up, whatever. I think Adam Silver has said at least once or twice that if there's you know, some kind of mass outbreak, they might have to stop. Um, but I, I think the NBA is playing this as safe and smart as they can. Um, I hate to be the kind of person who would downplay what's going on. I actually just found out that my cousin and my aunt tested positive, which is pretty scary stuff. Um, but if, if there is a group of people in the world who are um, physically equipped to deal with this virus, it's NBA players. And I know that they travel with coaches who are in the at-risk group. Um, or other members of the organization who may be in the at-risk group. Um, but I think all the precautions that the league has taken in, in setting up this restart, um, they've, to me, they've gone above and beyond, and I, I think they're going to be as safe as they possibly can. Um, and I expect things to, to push through as planned. So we've seen the uh, NBA players over the years be involved in social causes, whether it be hoodies or T-shirts and whatnot, and they've sort of done it on their own. Now the league is going to 
be a little more to the forefront. You know, we've heard about painting Black Lives Matter on the basketball courts and all that. How much do you think when we get down there, will this be a part of the everyday questioning as opposed to if you broke it down percentages versus the actual basketball? That's a good question. Um, and and just having that on the floor will certainly have it at the forefront of the conversation daily. Um, I, I think we can probably look to the schedule release that was on ESPN as sort of um, – a template for how things may be down in Orlando. There was there was mostly basketball talk on that show, but they did reserve some time to talk about uh, the political and, and social issues that they wanted to talk about, and I anticipate it will be the same way on the restart. Um, and I think it, it may be more at the forefront at the start, um, just when they're, they're kind of establishing what's going to be going on. I, I think they'll probably talk about it a little bit more then. But I, I would anticipate that the majority of the time will be spent on basketball, just as it was on that ESPN schedule release show. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I hesitate to break it down by percentage or whatever, but it, it will be a daily thing because it's on the floor. It's potentially going to be on a bunch of players' jerseys. Um, but I, I think by the end of the time there in Orlando, the focus will be squarely on basketball. Have the Lakers and Clippers separated from the West? Is there anything about this break that makes you think – uh, they are more or less vulnerable to the next four or five teams in the West, depending on what you think of Dallas and their level of playoff experience. Maybe you dismiss them, but certainly the other four, how good a shot do they have to wreck an, uh, a Clipper-Laker conference final? I feel about the same uh, about those two teams as I did around the time of the shutdown. Um, I think they're clearly the two favorites. But having said that, I would not be shocked if a number of teams in the West upset them. Um, I think you broke it down perfectly. Dallas is sort of on the fringe. I, I think with their lack of playoff experience, it's fair to question what they're going to look like um, in these this eight-game slate plus the playoffs. But they have an historically great offensive player and an historically great offense, and so I would not be surprised to see them get super hot in a series and upset somebody. Um, they can just they can put up points in bunches, and, and if you do that four out of seven games, you advance. Um, you know the Rockets have a ton of star power at the top of their roster, obviously with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And Harden is one of those guys who's been sort of on the offseason muscle watch during this uh, shutdown. He's lost a bunch of weight, and that that could be an indication of increased focus from him. Um, I think that the Nuggets are going to be a problem. Jokic is another guy who slimmed down. I'm, I'm actually really curious to see how he plays because I think there were some ways that the weight helped him. So he's going to be a fascinating watch for me. Um, the Jazz, I, I, I kind of pushed them maybe back to the Mavericks tier now because I think the loss of Bogdanovich is huge. Um, what he did to space the floor for Mitchell and Gobert, uh, who, who do a lot of their damage inside the three-point line, was huge. And, and not only that, um, it hurts their depth, of course, to not have him in the lineup. Now you've got to bump somebody up to get more minutes. Um, so I'm very concerned about what their rotation might look like without Bogdanovich. But this is my very long-winded way of saying that the Clippers and Lakers are, are the two favorites in the West, and I hesitate to pick which one I'd say is the favorite. Um, but there are a bunch of teams over there that, that would not surprise me to see an upset. 
As far as the Jazz perspective, I believe it's got to start with Conley. He's got to up his game, and I believe he's very capable. And if he ups his game, then that makes it easier for guys like Ingles, Clarkson, Yang, Moutier to up their games. But if Conley doesn't up up his game, then it puts the pressure on those other guys. So react to what I just said there. That's an excellent point. I mean, if Conley from 2018-19 coming out of this, shutdown, that, that could right there neutralize the loss of Bogdanovich, at least in a lot of ways and at least offensively. I think you're naturally going to have problems with a Tommy Mitchell backcourt defensively just because of their size. And Mitchell is obviously a, a fantastic athlete. He's got good wingspan uh, for a player of his height, so he can cover twos, I think, fairly effectively. But they're going to come up against some big wings, um, and that can cause problems for them defensively. But I think you're right on the money. If, if Mike Conley, maybe he's more acclimated to the system now over the last few months. Maybe he, he's more figured out his role. It seemed like he was kind of on that path just before the, the league shut down anyway. Um, so I think he can make up a lot of the ground that, that, uh, that they lost uh, when Bogdanovich went down with the wrist surgery. But I, I still have some concerns about the defense. When I look at Conley's numbers for uh... – October and November, which is about a 20-game sample. He's like 14 points a game, and he's shooting probably about 35% from three. Uh, both those numbers well off what he had been doing in Memphis that you know made him Mike Conley and got him that big deal. But then I look at the, the numbers that he put up in February and March, which is about a 13-game sample, and he's at 16.5 points a game, and he's shooting 45% from three. And I'm thinking, that guy, February, March Conley, if that's the guy who shows up in Orlando, well, getting more possessions because Bogdanovich isn't there to take a bunch of shots, so those shots will get split up and some will go to Conley and some will obviously uh, go to Joe Ingles and some are sure to go to Donovan Mitchell. But Conley at 20 points a game doesn't seem like a stretch at all if they get February and March Mike Conley. Yeah, that's a dynamic offensive player. Um, and, and I think part of the reason he struggled to figure out his new role in Utah is he was getting fewer shots than he got in Memphis, and it was less usage, less controlling of the ball. And so maybe Bogdanovich's absence in some way uh, you know, helps him recapture what he's doing in Memphis. And that, that helps them offensively, I, I think, a great deal. And now you've got three guys who can create for themselves and others, and Conley, Mitchell, and Ingles, uh, I, I would assume that's probably the starting, the, the, all three of those guys will start with, with uh, Bogdanovich out. Um, so you've got playmaking coming from a bunch of different angles. You've got a couple guys who should you know, conceivably be able to hit Gobert on lobs and Conley and Ingles. Um, so I, I think offensively there's a chance for a lot of dynamic play. You know, if Conley is that guy that you mentioned from, from February, February and March, if he comes back and, you know, it takes him a while to get going like it did at the start of the season, uh, then Utah could be in trouble pretty early. Another reason why I think that they can be a little bit better than people might be expecting, and I don't discount uh, Bogey's loss and how critical he was to the team because he was an excellent player and he's very fun to watch, is that they've known about this for a long time. It's not like it occurred during the season when games are coming at you fast and furious and there's not a lot of time to adjust you just got to go and you're basically you're making your adjustments on the fly here they will have had weeks literally that they've known about it and then they can have a couple of weeks before they actually have to play games in which they're practicing how much do you think that can mitigate 
this man's loss. That's an excellent point, too. Um, you know, Quinn Snyder, I think, over the last few years has demonstrated that he's one of the better coaches in the league at, at making adjustments and adapting to the personnel that he has. Um, you know, I remember when he was first hired, a lot of the talk was, you know, the Jazz got this offensive genius. He's written manifestos about the pick and roll. Um, it's going to be offense, offense, offense. And then yeah, I think we got a feel for the roster he had and the fact that his best player was this defensive juggernaut in Rudy Gobert, and it became a very defense-first team. Um, so I think given weeks and weeks to prepare for this, as you just mentioned, I, I think will help. Um, it's it's really going to fall largely on the shoulders of guys who have to fill in um, Bogdanovich's minutes and, and shot allocation. And you've mentioned a lot of them already. A lot of that offensive responsibility is going to go to Conley. Some of it will go to Mitchell. Um, but guys further down the bench who are now going to be thrust into slightly bigger roles, like George Niang, um, you know, Royce O'Neal might need to take a few more shots. He's always been a very, very low usage player. Maybe they can convince him to take another shot here or there. Maybe he can t- attack off the dribble now and then. Um, you know, it, it's going to take a team effort to replace that guy. I mean, it's it's not easy to replace 20 points per game and, and 40, whatever he was shooting from three, 41, 42%. Um, that's a big loss. But, like you said, they've had time to adjust to it. They've conceivably, they've, they've got a guy in Conley who, if he can get back to his old self, can help too. Um, you know, I think there's a chance they make up for it. It's, it's just, it is a big loss. And so it's going to be something to pay attention to. DJ PK and Andy Bailey join us. He covers the Utah Jazz for Forbes.com and the NBA for Bleacher Report. Are you one of those people who's going to be watching Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert's body language and how they interact? Or are you completely over that and don't care? I think I'll probably pay some attention to it in the first game or two. Um, you know, and if it doesn't look like there's any indication that there's a problem, then, then that's, that'd be it in, in my mind. I, Utah has come on, I think, a couple times and said, things are fine. Um, they'll be able to play together. And I think the players have both said that when it comes to winning, we're going to be on the same page. And so if they look, you know, like they're old, normal selves in the first couple games, I think it's fine to put that to bed. Everybody wants to win a title, and that's the whole point. That's what you're striving for. Uh, long-term pitcher, what do you think the Jazz need? I, I think they need a superstar leap from Donovan Mitchell. Um, I still think, you know, I, th- this was thrown around a lot in his rookie year, and it's cooled off a little bit the last couple years, but there were Dwayne Wade comparisons, there were Damian Lillard comparisons. I think I might have even gone as far as to say he could be a Dwayne Wade-Damian Lillard hybrid, which just, you know, that's very, very lofty. But I still think that potential is there uh, for him. I, I think if he becomes slightly more efficient as a scorer, I think this season he's actually above average um, in terms of true shooting percentage for the first time in his career. And he's, he's slowly been trending that direction over the course of his career. So if he gets a little bit more efficient, I think if he improves his playmaking a little bit, I, I think he's a guy who has the ability to average six or seven assists a game. And I think he will command the type, the type of attention that, that makes other guys open. Um, so I think if he can reach his potential, which to me is still like a top five to ten player in the league, Utah is in the title picture. Um, you know, I already think Rudy Gobert is better than people realize. I think he's, in terms of impact, probably a top 10 to 15 player in the NBA. And so if Donovan Mitchell joins him in that tier, then then you've got two top 15 guys, and that's kind of the foundation for championship teams here uh, for the last several years. You've got to have um, at least a couple of those guys. I mean, there are those rare examples like the 2011 Mavericks who did it with just Dirk. 
Um, there's the 2004 Pistons who, who were, you know, very, very team first. But I think Utah has a chance um, with Mitchell and Gobert to have two top 15 guys, and that's, that's a title contender right there. So when you talk about getting more efficient, does Mitchell have to pretty much double his trips to the free throw line? Free throw line is huge. Um, you're, you're right on track there. I think he's got a – I wouldn't say completely shy away from the mid-range shots because I think he's a lot better in that range than most people are in the NBA. Um, and if you can exploit that part of the floor where defenses maybe aren't paying as much attention as they used to just because you know fewer guys shoot, that's, that's a good shot for Donovan Mitchell. But there are times, I think, when he pulls up too quickly and, and he could get all the way to the rim and draw some contact. Um, the most efficient way to score in basketball is a trip to the free throw line. And so if he can increase those, that certainly increases his efficiency. Um, I think he has the potential to be a guy who shoots high 30s, you know, low 40s from three, too. I, I don't know if that's an every season type of a thing for him, but I do think he has that potential to be, to be that sort of a consistent three-point shooter. Um, so if you up the three-point percentage a point or two, you get to the free throw line, like you said, I, I think a lot more times. Um, he's suddenly a much, much more efficient scorer. And I, I do think playmaking is huge for him, too. Um, assists, I, I think, get everybody else on the team going. Um, like I said earlier, he draws a lot of attention on defense, so there are guys who are open sometimes when he's going to the rim and you think, well, there's Gobert for a drop-off or there's Ingles for a kick-out. Um, and he doesn't always find it. And sometimes that's fine. I mean, sometimes he'll score, sometimes he'll get a trip to the line, but but I think moving the ball just a little bit more would probably help them too. Do you think that the fact that there are no fans would actually favor the uh, statistically or the odds on favorite as far as the better teams? Because a lot of teams, you know, they draw the emotion from the fan base and maybe that pumps them up if they're an underdog. And obviously that'll be wiped out. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. Uh, to pay attention to, and I think impossible to predict just because we've never seen it. Um, we've, we've literally never had NBA, it, it, I can't think of a time, but it's got to be the first time in NBA history that we've had regular season games without fans. Um, and I think, yeah, there, there are a lot of times that underdogs draw on the spirit of the fans, and that, that might push them to upsets here and there. And so I, I think you may be onto something that maybe this is our best uh, way to determine which team has the most talent and, and which team is the most driven. Um, because I, I think there is something to being able to feed off the crowd uh, and the emotional push that they can give you. So now it's, it's down to just talent and intrinsic motivation um, for a lot of these players. So it'll be really interesting to see how certain teams react to that, um, you know, whether or not the lack of home court advantage throws things off. I don't, I don't Thinking about it now, I'm not sure how you measure it, um, but it will be very, very interesting to see NBA games played without fans. That's you know among the many, many things that are going to be fascinating to watch over the next few months. That's a big one. You know, people talk about the 76ers and they talk about you know Simmons can't shoot and does Simmons and Embiid get along? And to me, vastly underreported is the dramatic difference between them home and on the road. 22, 29 and two at home. It's the best home record in the NBA, and they are a horrific. 10 and 24 away from home. And I, for the life of me, cannot figure out how this is going to impact them being on a neutral court, not having to travel, but not having their fans, not having the other team's fans. Yeah. It just seems they're such a weird team. And now they're put in this weird environment that I don't know which, I don't know what it's going to do to them. That is an excellent point. Um, 
you know, we just talked about teams feeding off of crowds. I think Joel Embiid is a guy who clearly feeds off that 76ers home crowd. And now I'm, I'm real tempted after we finish this phone call to go look up his home and road splits because I imagine there's a pretty big difference there. Um, they have a ton of talent on that team. The, the fit was not great this season, and I think the numbers, I don't think, I know the numbers are quite a bit better when, when Embiid and Simmons play without Horford. In my mind, what I've kind of thought about them is they, they essentially started three centers for a lot of the season. In a lot of ways, to me, Ben Simmons is a point center more than a point guard. Um, so they had a lot of crowding and issues with that lineup that caused them problems, and they were starting to figure that out right before the season shut down. So in terms of talent, I think Philadelphia is still a great team. I wouldn't be surprised to see them come out of the East. But like you just said, without that home crowd to feed off of, um, and if, if that's something that really gets Joel Embiid motivated, maybe that's another team that could be right for for a you know first round exit. Um, they they could potentially. I think right now they're six, mm-hmm. so they may have to play the Boston Celtics in the first round. Um, and Boston has kind of had their number over the last couple of years. They beat them in a playoff series a couple of years ago. Joel, Joel Embiid said something like they kick our butts all the time. Um, so that that would not be a good first round matchup for them to pull, especially if they don't have the home court to help them out with a few of those games. Well, as always, Andy, we appreciate some of your time. Thanks for checking in with us. You can read more of Andy at Forbes.com. He's also on Bleacher Report. Andy Bailey. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks, guys. There's Andy Bailey, covers the Utah Jazz for Forbes.com and the NBA for Bleacher Report. When we come back, Brandon Huffman, national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. You know, there was a time when the youth got in the Pac-12 when the recruiting services routinely rated their recruiting classes as 9, 10, or 11, but the youths would find their way to the middle of the league. Now, the last four years, I think they've been ranked fifth twice and seventh twice, but they've been in the championship game twice. Why are the youths constantly... Uh, underrated. What's going on? Uh, we'll talk with Brandon Huffman about that and how he sees this year, which is really different recruiting-wise. Coaches can't travel. Players and their families can't travel to campuses. How is this going to play out? Are we going to see more transfers? Are we going to see more decommitments? We'll talk with Brandon Huffman next. And also, are we going to see a high school football season? Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80, The Zone. A reminder, the 4th of July weekend will be busy on the road, and ARUP wants... To be ahead of the game, Hans and Scotty G will be at ARUP in Sandy on Thursday. Broadcasting live from 10 to 2, ARUP is open from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And they'd love to see you there. Visit utahblood.org for all the details. We're joined now by Brandon Hoffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, good morning. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Good. You know, as we see you... Uh, as we see the rankings for classes and all that, I'm, I'm curious, with more transfers all the time, more grad transfers all the time, how do you figure that into a recruiting class as you, uh, as you put the rankings out? So it's, 
interesting because, you know, one of the questions that come with grad transfers or with regular transfers, how do you function them into the rankings? And so a lot of it kind of given the insight by the team that covered it. You know, this is a guy who was really good and he left because of this reason, or this is a guy who was at this school and couldn't play dead, but yet he left and some school needed him. So, you know, you're kind of relying a little bit more on the word on, on the beat writers to, to kind of give you a fair assessment uh, or unfair assessment, what have you, on how that player is going to fit if, you know, when they get to a school, they just all of a sudden aren't as talented or they weren't as good as maybe their high school rating suggested uh, or they were good and just became a victim of circumstance. So it's a lot more teamwork when it comes to that than say when you're doing high school ratings. As far as the senior class coming up this year, just looking at stuff that I've seen in the Pac-12, it looks like SC and Oregon are pulling away. Is that true? It is, but I would also say that, you know, there's (laughs) – <laughs> USC is getting a lot of attention right now because of some good offseason hires they made. And, you know, they're supposed to be a pretty decent team this fall, so we'll see if they can continue that momentum. But for all the scrutiny that Clay Helton has been under really for the last 18 months, it hasn't really been noticeable in their recruiting efforts. But I also think they've done such a good job of adjusting to the lack of ability to get recruits on campus and having a pretty good Southern California recruiting base that you can choose from. So as guys maybe are more hesitant to commit to schools further away because of the pandemic, USC is welcoming those guys into the recruiting class. If there's a season and the season goes as expected, you know, when people think USC will be good, I anticipate that class being stronger. But if the season goes how a lot of USC fans still probably help and will direct it, that class could allow Oregon to pull away even further and the rest of the tax will benefit. You know, we've seen the Utes ranked uh, 5th and 7th in the Pac-12, uh, which is an upgrade over the early days in the Pac-12 when they were routinely 9, 10, 11. But we've seen them often outperform whatever the rankings say. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, it's frustrating because every year they make us look stupid with the rankings the way they are, and then a player develops, and he gets there, and he gets under the coaches at Utah's direction and you know thoroughly outplays his ranking. And I think a, it, it just speaks to their ability to, A, evaluate, to find these guys when they're 16, 17, 18 years old and say, okay, in three or four years from now, this is what we anticipate this guy playing. I also think Utah does a, as good of a job as anybody is building a lot of depth. So they're not necessarily forced to throw in true freshmen to play right away unless that true freshman is you know, a fantastic player who deserves to be on the field. So it gives them some time to really develop those younger players and play them when they're ready rather than some schools that maybe rush younger guys in and play them before they're ready and then you get back to the ranking. Were they overrated or were they rushed? I think Utah does such a good job with their depth but then evaluating and then developing that depth over their three or four years there that by the time a guy's a senior, you now see a guy who is a potential draft pick. We even say it all the time. We'll have a rankings call and we'll look at a kid and we'll say, okay, this is the kind of kid that goes to Utah, ends up a three-time first-team all-pack 12 guy and ends up drafted. You know, and, and I think you're starting to see in more recent classes, Utah's classes are ranking higher because you cannot argue with the development track record has been. How many big-time four- and five-star studs are still out there uncommitted? There's a lot. You know, it's been interesting, too, because we've seen such a high rate and high number 
of commitments at this point. I think at one point in mid-January, there were 750 more commitments in mid-June. I'm sorry, in June. In mid-June of 2020, there were 750 more commitments than there were a year ago at this time. So a lot more players are committing to schools essentially to secure their spot. But the higher-rated guys, the guys that have all the schools that they really want to choose from after them and are in no rush to get a commitment from them, those guys are taking their time. Maybe they, they want to take more official visits. Maybe they want to get out and see these schools a little bit more. I think the players that have more offers, that are more highly regarded, have more leverage. So a lot of the elite top-end guys, they are still out there. But you're seeing more of the second and third-tier guys securing their spot at a school or maybe their status with that university isn't as strong as an elite prospect. So, you know, it's not uncommon to look in a lot of these states and the number one, two, three players in the state are uncommitted, but then four through ten have committed somewhere. I think there's kind of a feeling of we better secure our spot while we can. But on the other hand, there's the elite guys who are like, listen, this school's going to take my decision, my commitment in December or February because they want me that bad. Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports, joining us. Uh, We're seeing more players transfer, and we know the rules around transferring could change here uh, in a little while. And because of the coronavirus, we're seeing fewer on-campus visits. We're not seeing coaches fly across the country to visit. Everything's being done by Zoom. Do you think that's going to lead to more transfers, and we really need to take this recruiting class with a grain of salt? Yeah, you know, I, I got married well before any dating apps appeared, so I don't know if you swipe left or you swipe right on those things, but I think there's going to be a lot more uh, just come-to-Jesus moments this fall when schools get a chance to really see the guys that maybe they took commitments from, and on the flip side, recruits maybe go to the campus or talk to the coaches that they committed to. There might be more swiping the other way and maybe some mutual parting of ways. And in fact, I just said there being a lot of mutual parting of ways. I think we've you know, kind of established with the large amount of early commitments that you're essentially setting yourself up for a huge fall of decommitments because as things maybe open up, maybe get more normal with official visits happening, with unofficial visits being permitted once again, I think you might start to see schools and players cool on each other as they realize maybe this isn't as good of a fit. Maybe we rushed into it because we were more concerned about numbers. But the flip side of that is the longer the NCAA shutdown goes on, and if there's still the insistence that there's going to be a December signing period, maybe we have more players still with their original commitments. But then I think to your question, that's where you start to see the rapid amount of transfers because if guys are still having to make commitments to school sight unseen, and now you take away the opportunity for them in the fall to go take an official visit, maybe there's some coaching changes at school, but guys are still more worried about losing their spot at a school. Once they get there is when they now experience, this is when I should have broke up with this school. So I think we're not only heading to a large amount of decommitments, but I still think even if we do have a large amount of decommitments, we're heading towards a large amount of transfers in that first two years, especially in year one. And I think the transfer portal is going to be very, very busy early on in 2021 and in 2022, just because this is such an unusual, you know, really time that we're dealing with in recruiting. Who's got some of the better quarterbacks committed in the West? Well, 
Utah is a school that I like their quarterback. I really like Peter Castelli. He's a guy that, you know, continue to keep an eye on. You know, there's not the elite quarterbacks like there were a year ago when you had DJ Uyangalele and Bryce Young, but there's a good batch, kind of that next batch of guys out west. Washington's got Sam Heward. Uh, he's the number one pro style quarterback in the country. Ty Thompson uh, is like the number five dual threat guy. Like he's continuing to a rapid ascent up at the Elite 11 uh, down there in, in Nashville this week. Uh, he's committed to Oregon. Um, USC actually has two quarterbacks committed, Jake Garcia and Miller Moss. They're the number five and number six players in the state of California, respectively. I don't anticipate Jake Garcia sticks with that commitment. He committed to USC a year ago when Bryce Young flipped from USC to Alabama, but then with the addition of Miller Moss, that makes Jake Garcia a little more uh, desirable from a lot of school, for a lot of schools that are trying to flip him. Uh, you got Cal Wind, Arizona. Again, Cal's had quite a bit of success the last year in Arizona with Kyle Milner. Um, you know, Colorado is, I think, the only Pac-12 school that, that's yet to land a quarterback just yet, but every other Pac-12 school has one. In some cases, there's two. Uh, it's not as strong of a quarterback class, and you know, one of the things that college coaches love in the spring is the ability to go out and watch players throw and to be able to get to see these quarterbacks throw and see if they fit best with their program without there being the spring evaluation period. A number of schools lost the ability to have that opportunity because they were waiting until the spring instead of maybe watching guys throw in January. So there's going to probably be some a little more jostling than normal with quarterbacks down the stretch as guys emerge in their senior season. So for the first time in quite a bit of years, the senior season will once again matter in recruiting, and especially for quarterbacks. You'd uh, get a verbal commitment from Ricky Parks out of uh, Tampa, and in a year when traveling to see places and to, and to go see the players is hard. How did they get a guy cross country in this situation? What made him want to go to Utah? Well, I think that just kind of speaks to the track record that Utah has had in the state of Florida in the last few years. Uh, obviously, with, with the, the players that they had last year with Tyler Huntley and Zach Moss, I mean, it's becoming one of those programs that it speaks largely into the state of Florida, and kids know that if they want to get out of the SEC and out of the ACC, they have an opportunity to go west to a program that would love to have a pipeline into the state of Florida. And I think you look at, you know, not just the, the schools that, you know, Utah had to, to beat, but, you know, really who was recruiting him significant wins. I mean, to go in and beat a Florida State with a new coaching staff. And obviously Florida State is long flourish with recruiting in-state guys. They beat a Florida State. There's a number of SEC schools that come to him. Iowa, which has had a great track record of running backs over the last 10, 15 years, they wanted him badly. You had Penn State going down there. So you look at it. wasn't just Southern schools recruiting him. It was a lot of national schools, but Utah has had such a good run in the state of Florida, and I think Kellen Donald has really used that to his advantage in recruiting in the state of Florida, and they're still in the mix. They're still on the short list for a couple of the West top running backs, like Byron Carwell out of San Diego, who's got Utah in his top three, Jordan Hornbeek out of Fresno, who's got Utah in his top four. So they may not be done kind of spanning the country for top running backs, and in a year where I said the quarterback depth wasn't that great, it's even harder to find a really good running back and Utah's got an opportunity to go down south and go west and get top backs from both of those regions and add them to their arsenal. Who's, who are some of the top high school players in, in uh, Utah? Well, I think the big one that, that everybody's been kind of familiar with for the last few years is you've seen Orem really start to emerge as a just a real producer talent. It's King Lee Sumatari out of Orem, a 6'5", 
six five two hundred eighty offensive tackles. Already been flexed to play in the All American Bowl in San Antonio. Uh, he's headed to the Polynesian Bowl. You know, he's kind of the, the the class of the state, and he's been the number one player in the state really since the very first inaugural rankings about two and a half years ago. And you know, coming after Noah Sewell and after Puka Nakua the last two years out of Orem, he's been kind of the main guy. But there's been other guys that have emerged. You know, Jackson Light, an offensive lineman, a center out of Corner Canyon, who is probably the best center in the West and among the top centers in the country. He's headed to the Under Armour game, committed to the University of Oregon. Uh, at Salt Lake City East, you got Boye Tanuki, who's headed to the University of Washington. You know, one of the most versatile athletes in the state is rated the Mooney out of Tenth View, uh, BYU command. And then you got two of the best jumbo athletes really in the West region, and Logan Fano out of Tint View, uh, and then Isaac Baja out of Pleasant Grove. Baja 6'7", 230. He's got BYU and Utah as his top two schools, but he's got a number of Pac-12, Big 12 schools after him, and Logan Fano is really down to Utah and Washington at this point. Uh, an elite pass rusher, another Polynesian Bowl selection. So you've got some guys up front, uh, but then you got a guy like Raider DeMooney who can play a number of spots in the secondary. You just He's one of those guys who get on the field and let him kind of turn loose. And then probably one of my favorite players to watch in the state of Utah. I got a chance to see him at the All-American Combine in San Antonio uh, in January. And then at the Under Armour Combine in February is Viliami Poha out of Bingham, whose father is Tune Poha, the coach at, defensive line coach at Utah. He's already committed to the youth, and I really like him. Maybe doesn't get the attention as some of the other top guys in the state, but a player that I love that early commitment to Utah and a player that I think is going to really flourish in college Yes, he's one of those guys that develops, gets bigger, gets stronger, gets more physical, and just develops into an elite Pac-12 type guy by his sophomore, junior, senior season. Brandon Huffman, national recruiting editor for uh, 24-7 Sports, joining us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. As you talk to the folks around high school football around the country and as all the people on your staff do, are we going to see high school football in every state? Some states, no states. How optimistic are you about a high school football season? You know, I'm optimistic that there will be a season. I'm not optimistic it'll be in the fall. You know, there's a, there's discussions that the state of Florida today is going to be talking about moving football season to the spring. California, I think they set mid-July as kind of their deadline to make that decision if they're going to play it in the fall or if that moves to January or maybe it moves to March. You know, there's other states in the, in the country, and I think what you're going to see is like we did with the NCAA tournament uh, when the conference tournaments were canceled, you need kind of a big conference to make that move for the other conference move. I think in the same boat, you're going to need one of the bigger high schools, the Texas, the Florida, the Georgia, the Californias, to be the first one to make that move. And once they do, I anticipate the trickle-down effect will happen. But I would say... Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was more optimistic there would be a football season in the traditional fall. Now I'm becoming less optimistic just talking to high school coaches, even talking to some college coaches. Even they're starting to worry that their seasons are going to be a pushback. Maybe they go to a conference-only schedule. Maybe they go to a you know a shortened season that starts in January. There will be football. It just may be a little bit longer till we actually see it. I think high school, though, puts itself in the, the highest risk because of the liability with minors. And I would say that there's a better chance we see the high school season move in sooner rather than later than we do with the colleges and the pros. 
He's Brandon Huffman, covers uh, recruiting. He's the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, we appreciate you coming on and sharing a few minutes with our listeners. Thanks a lot. Gladly. Thanks a lot, guys. Brandon Huffman, national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. When we come back, what is trending? The headlines next. 